Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, you can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, The Golden Chain of Salvation. chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we'll read verses 28 to 30 here in just a moment. A couple things to pass along to you. Um, One is uh, this coming uh, weekend, uh, we'll be uh, observing the Lord's Supper together. So please be mindful of that this week. Um, I also mentioned to you this G3 conference that is taking place uh, September 30th through October 2nd. It is down in Atlanta, uh, a lineup of just some really phenomenal preachers. And in some of these days we are in um, some leaders that are given some exceptional leadership um, to the church. And so I'm looking forward to it. Uh, if you want to take part in that, please see Brian Blair. He's kind of coordinating some of the group there. Romans 8. We began looking at this passage last week and studying verse 28. um, And we've made mention that 28 through 30 are, in a sense, summing up all of the the doctrine that has been taught for this first seven and a half uh, chapters of this book, encompassing an explanation of the gospel. What is this salvation? So begin with me in verse 28. We'll read through 30 and then we'll pray. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Our great sovereign God, your word reveals yourself, who you are, how you've made this world, the glories of this work of redemption that you've made. And Father, we want to know you. We want to know all about this work of salvation. We want to know how you've made the world. We want to know what you're doing. We want to know what is to come. We want to please you, see all of the amazing ways you have worked, created, shown mercy so that we can worship you as we ought. So Father, we ask, please give grace. Please come to us right now. And the grace that is needed to pay attention, to think deeply, for our minds not to wonder, to follow the reasoning of this text, to to be able to intellectually comprehend what's going on in this passage. Please give us grace. But Father, we know that the end is not just in mentally understanding these things. We want to know your word down to the, the depths of our bones. We want to know you and in knowing your word to be transformed by them. Lord, this, this passage There are sweet and wonderful truths here that if we will see them, there is tremendous comfort, tremendous security. And Father, 
We need it. We want it. I desperately want this security. So Father, please give it to us. Minister, minister to us, we pray, in exceptional ways this morning as we study through these truths. Give grace, we ask. Help us, Lord. Protect this service. Glorify your name. And we ask all of this through the name of Christ. Amen. A number of years ago, there was a uh, pretty clever novel that was written. Eventually got turned into a movie as well, as I'm describing it. You may recognize it. A work of fiction, which will be readily obvious as I begin to explain it to you. But the plot line was that there was a man who lived a pretty boring kind of life. But one day he began to hear a narrator's voice in his head. This narrator's voice would speak and explain things right before they were about to happen. He found it uncanny. He thought he was maybe going crazy. And this continued to happen sporadically. He would be engaging in some action, some work, and this female narrator's voice would be explaining what he was doing as they were happening. He came to realize, again, a work of fiction, he came to realize that he was a character in someone else's book. Some author was writing and he was a part of this story. He pondered what he ought to do. He eventually decided that he would go um, find a literature professor to go ask for some advice. So he goes to a college, he gets into a conversation with a liter literature professor and after convincing him that he's not crazy, the, the professor offered some advice. He said, you need to find out what kind of story you're in. Uh, what role do you play? Are you the main character, a supporting role? And then you have to know what kind of story is it? Is it a love story? A horror? A murder mystery? You have to find out what kind of story you're in to figure out what role you play. I find that a pretty helpful metaphor. Um, in understanding where we fit in, in this great work that God is doing as he has written the story of history and the events are unfolding, you will not understand life. You will not understand your purpose, what you're supposed to be doing, where this is all heading, how you're supposed to live, unless you understand the story you're in. What's the plot? Who's the hero? What's the point? Where's this all going? You, you, you have to understand the world you live in to understand all of it, life. And part of the reason why we are uh, told truths of the Bible like we find in the passage that we're going to look at. God explaining some of the complex realities that, that exist in this world. Part of the reason why God does this is so that you and I will understand the world we live in. This is the only way we'll make sense of this place to get a handle on life and how to live. In one sense, we could say that biblical doctrine in general, one of its functions, it's not its only, but one of its functions is to explain the world so that we understand the story that we are in. By the way, this is why the humanities are taught in classical education. 
And when a kid, and maybe you did this, uh, if you can think back to your high school days or something, when you were forced to read poetry or something, and you thought, this is stupid, when am I ever gonna use this? Did you ever say those kinds of things? The answer is, how about every day that you breathe? Is that enough? <laughs> every day that you breathe, you need to know this stuff because this is the world you live in. This is the world that God made. This is the reality and you do not understand the world you live in until you engage with these things. If you don't understand gravity, life's not going to go well. And if you do not understand that you are here in this life for a temporary period and you will die and then stand in judgment, you're not going to live as you ought. God explains the world to us so that we can live, so that we can live. In this passage, as we begin to walk through these truths, we're going to see God show his sovereignty, his supremacy in a way that maybe you've never seen before. Show his majesty, his might, his power, his infinite wisdom. And first and foremost, we are shown these things so that we will be led to worship so that we will give him the glory that he is worthy of, that we will fall on our faces and worship. But another one of these functions, it is given to us so that we will understand the world that he made. This is the God who made you, who reigns, who judges. You will not understand reality until you understand who he is. He's the reference point and how he has made this world. When you learn this doctrine that we're going to begin this morning for the first time. So again, if this is new to you and, and, and you're going to encounter these kinds of truths for the, the first time, it, it's going to feel like somebody knocked you off of your foundation and, and maybe even spun you on a merry-go-round and then just put you out because you're just reeling and spinning and just trying to make sense of the world. You thought you knew how the world worked and then you find out, I don't know how the world works. And it's gonna feel like somebody knocked you off your foundation. And the reason is because somebody knocked you off your foundation. What we do in our flesh is we gather little sand piles, little mounds, and we stand on them based on how I think the world works, how I think God is, who I think I am. And the Bible comes along and pushes you right off. Pushes you right off the little mound of sand that we built for ourselves. But what happens is when we come to know and believe biblical doctrine, we're placed on a foundation. And I want to tell you this, these truths in particular of God's sovereignty, predestination, his work there. When you come to see and believe these truths, there is secure footing that is put underneath you. You're going to find that there is a security that exists that you never knew was there before. There is a great comfort that we take from this, that our God is unfolding his purposes. He's not just reacting He's unfolding his sovereign purposes. And so I'm excited to begin studying through these truths with you. This, this passage, 29 and 30, that we're going to look at has six parts, as I see it outlined there. What we're shown is uh, there's the great goal that is presented. 
and then five specific works of God that are mentioned that God, uh, God works in order to bring about this goal. So a goal and then five specific works. So how we'll study this morning is I'm going to spend some time preaching the goal that we're shown there. And then we'll come to that section of looking at these works of God. It was my intention. This is what happens a lot of times in study. It was my intention to just work our way through all of them. But when it comes down to study, you see it's going to take longer than that. So we're only going to make it through the first work of God um, for today. And then we'll see more in the coming weeks. So we begin with the goal that is explained here. We're shown that goal in verse 29. If you look there again, we're shown the father's goal for us. And then the father's goal for Christ, his son. So follow along with me. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now we're going to get to that. Those are two works of God, foreknew, predestined. But then watch now how he transitions to say, what what, what are we predestined to? Uh, Why is he doing this? What's the, the goal? He predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son. That is God's goal for you. Now look at the father's goal for his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Let's talk about both of those. So first God's goal for us, for you who are in Christ. God is working history to save souls. The gospel is the plot line of history. Let's just make clear. You can still misunderstand the world if you know the message of the gospel, but you don't yet comprehend that God's work to save people to to gather a family, a people holy unto himself. If you don't see that that is the central storyline of the cosmos from before the world was made into the eternal future, you still don't get reality. Reality is not about money, houses, land, and jobs. Reality is about God is working to save souls. The work of Christ defines the plot line of history. God has a point. God has an end. God is working to save souls and not just so that we will have a big vacation in the sky. There's an end. And the goal that God is bringing us to is that we would be made holy, obedient, pure, spotless, undefiled, righteous, like Christ is pure, holy, spotless, undefiled, righteous. Why? Because that's beautiful. That's that's what true glory is. You and I in our flesh are not good judges of what is truly beautiful and what is truly glorious. Uh, When when we try to define those things, we, we mess it up. When we think about what's wonderful, what's beautiful, what's admirable, what is great, like what is the pinnacle of what we could become? If somebody came and asked you, if you could become anything you wanted to be, what would you be? Well, we tend to give kind of fleshly answers. Some of us men in the room, we might say, I'd like to be 240 pounds of shredded muscle. Another person might say, I want to be rich and powerful. If one of your daughters 
You were talking about when she grows up and what she's going to do. And one of your daughters said, when I grow up, my goal is I want to be the most beautiful woman of history. What would you say to her? Well, I hope you would say something like, oh, bud, that's a really shallow, <laughs> vain kind of goal. That's not worth living for. That's not the point of life. There are bigger things to live for. Okay, we're getting to something here. What is worth it? What is greatness? What is the point for, for us to reach that highest pinnacle of, of what it is to be glorious? What is that? You can answer that by summing it up. It's Christ. It's to be like Christ. The world would answer all their kinds of things about money, success, climb the corporate ladder, blah, blah, blah. The Bible would answer, Jesus shows us the goal. Jesus has modeled it for us. The highest place of glory that you can reach is to be like Christ. This is what is beautiful. This is what the Father delights in and desires to save a people for himself that we would be holy and blameless, zealous for good deeds to worship and love him, to be like Christ, to be like Christ in his knowledge, in his character, like him in our conduct, in our speech, in our lifestyle, love, relationships, to glorify him by being who we were created to be. Now, I want you to make this connection in scripture. It's another one of these kind of mind-blowing moments where you're just kind of like the, the Bible could not have been written merely from human origins. In the beginning, you have mankind created in the image of God. We were given our blessing and our commission. Go forth, multiply, flourish, rule the earth, bear fruit unto God. We were made in the image of God. We're made in the image of God and then the fall came and, and we retained the image of God. So even though we are a bunch of sinners in the room right now, we are still made in the image of God. It has remained, but it was tainted. It was marred. That image of God was corrupted. Well, now think about what we're being told here. What is God doing in salvation? We are being conformed to the image, image, light bulbs, Red flags going off, reminding us Genesis 1 being conformed to the image of Christ, who is the image of the Father, who is God in the flesh. We were made in the image of God. We fell in many ways from the image of God. And now we are being restored to the image and glory of God. When we come to uh, this last work of God in verse 30, glorified, what does this mean? We're going to be made into what is truly glorious. And what is truly glorious is to be made like Christ. The work of salvation saves us from our sins. If this is new to you, then when we use this language of you must be saved and the Bible uses this, you may find it a strange language. I'm just telling you, this is the message of the Bible. That word is used hundreds of times. God speaks from heaven and says, you must be saved. You must be saved from the hell that you deserve. You must be made right with God. And the way to be made right with God is to turn and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You must know the name of Christ and trust in him and you will be saved. But what does it mean that God saves us from our sins? We're saved from our sins in that we're saved from the judgment that we deserve because of them. 
Too many times that's where we stop though, because the rest of it is equally true. God is saving us and will finish this work, saves us from our sins in that he is making us into a people who will no longer sin. Sin will be something just from our history that will not be accomplished in its entirety in this life. We are to make progress, but that is what glorification is. All that is disgusting will be removed. Part of our problem is we're not good judges of what is beautiful and glorious. We don't find our sin disgusting. We will one day. We will be saved from all that is wretched and disgusting and brought to what is truly glorious to be like Christ, washed and made pure. The more like Christ we become in this age, the more glory we give him, the more useful we'll be, the more reward we gain. But this is God's goal for us. God's goal for us is to make us glorious like his son is glorious. So Christian, desire that, work for that. And then here's the second part of this goal. We saw the father's goal for us. Now look at the father's goal for his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. The term firstborn here is, is used in a metaphorical kind of way. Jesus was uh, born into this world as a baby, but he was not the first of humans born. So it's not referring to his incarnation. That's not what the term firstborn means. It's also not the case, okay? This is some of the heresy we have condemned in history, okay? It is not the case, though some have thought this, that before the world was made somewhere in the past that Jesus was created or, or born, that there was some time that Jesus didn't exist and then he did exist. No, that's not the case. Scripture teaches Jesus is eternal. John 1, he is God with the Father and he always has been God with the Father. Okay, so heresy, stamp it, not true. This term firstborn is not speaking of something literal, it's used in a metaphorical kind of way. The firstborn occupies a place of prominence. In the law, for instance, the firstborn child was dedicated to the Lord and had a, a larger inheritance than the rest of the siblings. The firstborn had the privilege of, of being first place among the rest. It is the will of the father that his only begotten son be given the place of preeminence and supremacy amongst those. Jesus was made as a human, took a human body. He is not ashamed to call us who are in Christ, not ashamed to call us brethren, but it is the will of the father that Jesus would be uh, in that place of supremacy and preeminence, that he would be looked to as the one who is in first place, exalted and glorified. Turn over to another passage with me, please. Uh, Colossians chapter one. A passage where more detail on this is given. So Colossians 1. Colossians 1 is a pretty incredibly significant passage. I've mentioned in the past that if you understand Ephesians 1, you understand the, the storyline of history. I would add in Colossians 1. If you understand Colossians 1, you understand the why and the motivation behind why God has made the world and how he has done it in all of this. Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 13. 
I'll just try to make some comments along the way as we read. For he, that is the father, rescued us. There's another word for salvation. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom, in Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, there's that language again, of all creation. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Every dust particle in the cosmos was created by Jesus. It is sustained through Jesus and it is for the glory of Jesus. The father designed all of creation and all of history to exalt the name of his son. You don't understand reality unless you understand that. Let's keep going. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, we could continue going. That passage just continues to say great things. But what is the point? What's the point we're shown there? The supremacy of Christ, God, the father has worked the creation, ordained creation and worked history and is unfolding history so that his son will be magnified. His son will be glorified to the highest place of affection. And I want you to think about how he has done that. I want you to think about how he's, I am sure that some of these mysteries of the universe, quasars and stars and things like this in the end will magnify Christ in ways we can't explain right now. But when it comes to the plot and storyline of history, think about how the father has ordered all things for the exaltation of his son. If you are in Christ, you love him. We love him. Why? Do you love him? Well, we should love him first and foremost for who he is, the glorious son of God. But we also, and we might even say chiefly, love him because he died for us. He is our redeemer. For you who are in Christ, he saved us and it came at great cost. It was not easy. He bled. He was tormented. His back was filleted open and he died in order to provide the atonement that we needed. We love him for that. We delight in him for that. I can be saved from hell. You can be saved from the worst possible fate. D Dads, do you ever just like look at your children and want the absolute best for them, just so bad. You could just weep, just wanting what is best for them and then just rejoice that you got to be born in a place and a time and a circumstance that God gave you the gospel and you get to give the gospel to your kids. Your kids can be saved from hell because of what Christ has done. 
We love him for that. Think about what the father has done. The father has worked history so that Jesus is in a place that we adore him because of what he accomplished. God could have written the story of history because that is part of the point that we're seeing here is the sovereignty of God. The, the earth is not just unfolding and God is reacting. God ordained a plan. God decreed purposes that he is unfolding. God could have written this story any way that he wanted to. He is sovereign. If you and I were writing the story, we would have written it very differently because we're selfish. We would have written the story to be nice and easy and comfortable without difficulty and pain and death. God the Father has ordained and worked history in such a way that yes, there is all of the turmoil and the difficulty, but when we come to the day of judgment, we who are in Christ, we will rejoice and we will know that it was done in the wisest of ways. We will be glad that God brought it about in the way that he did. He has worked history for the exaltation of his son. Guys, we are getting insights into the whys the why behind why he has done what he has done. Why order history like this? So that Jesus will be glorified. And that is the father's sovereign prerogative. God has worked history to exalt the name of his son. And when Jesus is adored, the father delights and, in glorify, and, and is glorified. This is the goal. This is the purpose. Jesus is exalted and you get to be saved. That's a win-win. Jesus is magnified and you get to be saved. Win-win. And when that happens, the father is glorified. Win-win, win-win, win-win. It is bringing about the greatest of possible ends all to the glory of God. That's the goal. That's the goal. And now we want to look at how it is that God does that. So how is Jesus, or see, how is the father exalting the name of Jesus? How is God making you, conforming you to the image of Christ? Well, we can sum that up by saying salvation. Salvation. Salvation magnifies the name of Christ. Salvation is what is producing this end that the father desires. Salvation encompasses everything that God does to move a person from darkness to light, from before the world was made into the eternal future. Salvation refers to the whole process. Now, you also need to know, we've pointed this out before, that as you're reading the Bible, you will see the word saved and salvation used in some different kinds of ways. So for instance, there are times where someone talks about a person being saved. They were saved and that's referring to their conversion, the new birth and justification when they came to believe that moment when they were made right with God. There are also two passages in the New Testament that use the language that we are still being saved that is the work of sanctification, that there's this promise on our life and God is still at work keeping us and bringing us to the end. And then 
The Bible also speaks that that time where it is finished, what we call glorification, we will be saved. So saved, being saved, will be saved. So just as you're reading the Bible, know that it's used in that kind of way. But oftentimes we use the word salvation. We see this used in the Bible to refer to the whole process, the whole thing. What all did it take to save you? What is still happening and yet to be accomplished? That's salvation. And so what verses 29 and 30 do is they show us five works of God. I think that there is a sixth one that is implied. It's just not specifically stated sanctification. I think that's implied with the being conformed to the image of Christ part there, but five works of God. And so let me, um, let me make some comments first, just kind of pertaining to the, all of them. And then we'll get to this first one. So first, let me just kind of talk about the, the sum of them from start to finish. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. That phrase is repeated throughout the Bible. And it can sound kind of generic and just Bibleese and may not just mean anything to you, but it has a purpose. The statement salvation is of the Lord means that salvation is not of man. Salvation is not of human strength, human wisdom, human ingenuity, human origin, human power. Salvation is of the Lord. We cannot save ourselves. In fact, we cannot do even one, even one of the things that it took for salvation to occur. Okay, so for instance, for us to be saved, there had to be a sacrifice of atonement. You and I could not do that. That we had no way of finding some way to provide a sacrifice that would pay for our sins. You and I need to be made, uh, we need to be reconciled to God. We had no way of accomplishing that. There was a debt that needed paid, a debt you and I could not pay. In fact, when you get all the way down to it, even after God has provided the sacrifice in all of the uh, amazing providential ways that he brought about the death and resurrection of his son, accomplishing re redemption, finishing the payment price, if God had stopped there and done nothing else, no soul in history would ever be saved because even the faith that it takes to believe, to receive the benefits of Christ, even that we are incapable of producing on our own. That's why the Bible says that faith is a gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, faith is a gift of God to believe. Now, we don't tend to think like that. You know, we, we tend to think that that's something I can muster up. I, I mean, surely just believe I can do that. We are weaker than we think we are. A couple times in the New Testament, we're told that repentance has to be granted from God. Even to turn, even to want him. God has to work. You and I are incapable of doing any of the things that it took to be saved. We are dependent on him for every milligram of grace to be delivered from our sins and the hell that we deserve. Salvation is of the Lord. And from start to finish, salvation is of the Lord. Philippians 1.6 he who began a good work in you 
will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Part of the point of these verses is the definite certainty of salvation for those whom God has foreknown and predestined. If God predestines someone, they will be called. He won't forget anybody. And if God draws someone to himself, they will be justified. That, that's why we talk about the uh, effective calling of God. And uh, there's, there's a, a term we sometimes use of irresistible grace. That when God draws someone, we will be magnetically drawn to him, irresistibly magnetically drawn. God changes our hearts so that we want him. So it's not like it works that God draws somebody to salvation and somebody's like, oh, I hate this. I don't want to be saved, but yet God's forcing me. That's not how it works. Our hearts are remade, changed, stirred so that we want him. And when God calls someone, they will be justified. They will believe and be justified. And if someone is justified, look what is stated there. They will be glorified. God's not going to lose anybody. If he loses anybody, he failed. And God does not fail. God is bringing us through. There is a certainty. And from start to finish, God is the one at work. Foreknew, predestined, called, justified. He keeps us and we will be glorified. So let's talk through these works of God. Five are mentioned. Here's the first one. Verse 29, look at it again. Those whom he foreknew. Well, what this is teaching is that before the world was made, before even time itself was created, by the way, we get that from 2 Timothy 1, 9, among other places, that we're, we're told that grace was given even before the ages began. Before the world was made, before time was even created, God designed children. God designed people in his mind. Flip over to Ephesians 1 with me. As we look at Ephesians 1, um, it's impossible to talk about what it means to, for God to foreknow people without connecting it to the next step, which is predestination. We'll be talking more about it next, uh, next weekend, Lord willing, but... There's a connection here, obviously, but I want you to see this language that is used. So Ephesians chapter one, start in verse three. What happens in verse three is that this, uh, there's a statement of worship. We're thankful that God has done for us everything that we need, every spiritual blessing. And then he goes on to describe some of them. So starting verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Here's the first one. Just as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless. There's that again, holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, so through the gospel, to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Before the world was made, God 
designed a people first in his mind. He planned. He formed these people. He knew them. God wanted to create a group of people and lavish grace on them. Lavish grace on them so that they would see as much of his glory as is possible, that they would love him, but love him with the deepest of love that is possible. So God designed people and said, I want to bless them immensely. So how do you do that? God could have done whatever he wanted. He is the sovereign. He has prerogative. Like we've mentioned, he could have just designed a really nice peachy kind of life that never had difficulty. But do you understand that if God had done that, we would know he was glorious, but we would not know the depths of his glory. We would know that he was gracious, but we would not know the abundance of his grace. We would not worship him as we will because we have been saved from hell. And when we come into that kingdom and we are made to understand with a greater depth, we will worship him with a vibrance that we just would not have had everything been nice and easy. God is beautiful. God is wonderful. God is glorious. God is the giver of all joy. To be in the presence of God is to be in the presence of delight. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. God wanted to reveal the abundance of his glory to these people. He wanted to create a people and wow them. He wanted to give them life and joy and everlasting delight. And all of this was decided before the world was made. Before it was made, God designed, God planned, and God decreed. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Listen to this part. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God planned history. There's a really important distinction we have to make here. We are not simply saying that God is a really good fortune teller and he's able to see into the future, what would happen. What the Bible tells us as mysterious, mind boggling, puts you in a <laughs> vegetative state for a few days kind of thing that it is, we are told he wrote the plan of history before he even made the world. He ordained purposes that he was going to bring about. That is unfathomably deep, it causes hundreds of questions to come up into our mind. If you're learning this for the first time, that there is a can, a can of worms just got opened, okay? And, and you're, gonna, you're not gonna be able to sleep for a few days maybe, and that's good, wrestle through it, okay? There, there is just complexities and difficulties. What, what, what ifs, well, what does that mean about my decisions and my freedom? Like, how does all of that work? Yeah, it's all part of the Bible. It's all there, it's difficult, it's complex. But what you are being shown is glory of God that is beyond what we fathomed. He is sovereign. And that's what it means to be sovereign. So 
God knew these people beforehand and God chose to love them. He chose to love a yet uncreated people and give them the greatest gift that could be given. And so he has unfolded this history as it is. This foreknowing is not just God planning history. So we just said, it's not just that he sees the future. He planned his story through history, but it's not only that. He knew these children. He knew these people, these sons and daughters that he would create and choosing already before they were even alive to love them. He knew them. Notice that the text does not just say that God knew they would come. He knew the people. The word know in the Bible is used in kind of a range of ways. Sometimes it's used um, just an intellectual understanding, like we know that there's snow out in the parking lot. Usually when the Bible uses the word know, it's a, more, it's a much deeper kind of knowledge. When the scripture says to know the Lord, it is referring to a, a depth of knowledge. So like when Adam knew his wife and she conceived, that is an intimate kind of knowing. And God foreknew his people in a deep and intimate way and set his love on us. Flip over to the book of John, please. John chapter 10. Book of John is just absolutely filled with language like this. But John chapter 10. Uh, John 10. We'll back up to verse 27 to get a little context. Jesus is preaching on that he is the good shepherd and he has sheep. He has sheep that he was sent to go get. Uh, you need to think about that part. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That relates to what we're looking at as well. But look at verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. The father gave to Jesus a group of people to go get, to go gather. Here is a list. Go get them. Go redeem them. Turn to John 17. John 17, 24. We find ourselves in this passage just all the time. Jesus's high priestly prayer on the night of his uh, betrayal, the night before the crucifixion, he is praying to the father. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me. He's praying for the church down through the ages. And he says of them, you gave them to me. The, those whom you have given to me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. God, the father gave to Jesus a certain group of people to redeem. Who are these people? They are those whom the father foreknew and predestined. I, I, I want to point this out. This, this has at times been an unpopular kind of doctrine. Every doctrine of the Bible that just really punches your pride in the throat gets unpopular. This one does. One of, but if you deny the doctrine of election, you don't just mess up the passages that specifically use the word elect and predestined. There are no less than a hundred passages of the Bible that just make zero sense if you deny this doctrine. 
the very point of why God said these words. It's lost if you deny the doctrine. The glory that God is revealing and he is this big and this sovereign, it's lost. You don't know who God is if you deny these truths because you are robbing him of his glory. The Father gave to Jesus a group of people to redeem. They are those whom the Father foreknew. Now, I want, I want to take just a, a bit of time here and defend this, d defend this doctrine. Some have wanted to use this language that God foreknew people to try to undo what then the Bible teaches, to undo this work of predestination and election. So some have wanted to say, well, what it means that God foreknew is that God, like a fortune teller, looked into the future and he looked to see who would choose him to be saved. And so then God chose those people. So they reverse the order. When I explained that to my teenage daughters, they instantly saw the illogical fallacy of that. Okay. It's dishonest with the text. If you say that God only predestined the people who first chose him as he looked down through the tunnels of time, you're changing the definition of words. It's not honest. The text says what the text says. The flesh does not like this doctrine. This doctrine throat punches your pride because it shows you, you are not the Lord of your destiny that you thought you were. You are not the captain of your fate like you thought you were. This, this doctrine really challenges what we think our rights are before the living God. So some have despised this doctrine because they said, well, that, that's not fair of God to do that. By the way, that exact question comes up in chapter nine. Is this just? Is predestination righteous? That question is asked and answered in chapter nine. So uh, by the way there, if you're going to try to say the predestination isn't really predestination, then why does Romans chapter nine ask the question, is it righteous or is it just? If all God is doing is looking down through the tunnels of time, there's no challenge there. The very fact that the question is being asked is proof, is more evidence showing that this is exactly what is being explained. And I just want to caution you. You have to do some real verbal gymnastics with the text in order to try to undo this. The text says what it says. He chose us before the foundation of the world. God has an elect people. He predestined a people before the foundation of the world. If your understanding of scripture is that God didn't predestine, you're, you're saying the exact opposite of what these passages that we've read are. Romans 9 says he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Romans 9 goes on to say that as the potter has authority over the clay to make whatever he wants from it. So God has authority over us to make us into vessels of wrath or vessels of mercy. And that is completely the decision of God. That's what it means to be sovereign. He has the freedom, the authority, and the power to do whatever he wants. This is the world you live in. This is the God who reigns. Worship him. Don't fight against him. Just last thing I'll say in defense of this doctrine, and that is this. When people object to the 
foreknowledge and predestination doctrine. You'll notice that no one ever objects on the grounds of scripture. You'll notice that no one ever says, well, I was reading in this passage and it just convinced me that predestination isn't really there. No, no, no. It's always on the grounds of philosophy. It's always on the grounds of, well, I know that, you know, Ephesians 1 says he chose us in him, but that can't be right because it's not fair. So we need to find a way to reword all this. It's always on the grounds of human philosophy and I don't like it kind of thing. But the text was it, what says what it says. God is sovereign. God is running the world. Salvation is of the Lord from start to finish. There is a people that God foreknew. And he predestined them. Now, in coming days, we'll talk more about our responsibility, our freedom. We're not robots. You make real decisions, just like Joseph's brothers made real decisions and meant evil. But yet what they did resulted in the ordained plan of God. It's, it's a mystery. It is mind boggling. But God is unfolding his plan. God designed in his mind children he wanted to give life and joy to. He set about a plan to give them that eternal joy to the praise of the glory of his grace. What we see is that it took more grace than even we thought to save us. So Christian, praise him for his grace. Praise the glory of his grace. This is meant to make us fall on our faces. This is meant to overwhelm us when we learn this, to, to just see how much grace he has given. This is meant to make us weep in gratitude. If you learn these things and your pride begins to swell, you're misunderstanding the doctrine somewhere. It is meant to humble us. It is meant to lower us and to cry out and just say, God, I have no, I have no reason why you saved me other than you are kind and merciful, worship him. And if you have never turned to Christ to be saved, I want to ask you the question, do you want to? Do you want to be saved? Do you want to be made right with God? If that is the case, then thank God. He has been doing something inside of you. If you want him, he has worked. So turn to him, turn to him. Call out to Christ and ask him to save you. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you want to ask questions about that, somebody to pray with you, find me before you leave. Let me close this in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the glory of your grace. We are amazed that you have been so kind to us. Help us, O oh Lord, to, to come to greater understanding of these truths Please keep us from the many errors that we could come to by thinking of these truths. Lead us, O oh God, to right understanding and lead us to worship. Lead us to gratitude. Lead us to rejoice in our salvation. And Father, I, I pray for any in the room that has never turned to Christ. Please draw them to yourself. Stir and bring that new birth and bring them to believe to be saved. Please give us your blessing. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Lord bless you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at True Vine IND. 
or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.